Well, good morning, everybody, and thank you for braving the cold. It is nasty out there, but you came in. And so here's what I want to reward you with. Last week, we talked about money, and you're like, okay, we got that out of the way. This week, we're going to talk about money and hell for the next 30 minutes, and it is going to be fantastic. Pastor Joel was so excited, he said, Dave, our new lead pastor, do you think he'll be taller than me or shorter than me? So he's already getting things ready to go. But if you are aware of what's taking place, here's what's happened. Last week, we looked at the first half of Luke chapter 16. And the big idea there was, how are you going to use your earthly possessions for eternal investments. And we think about this, we engage with this. One of the strategies we hear, have at the church is that we would be people who invite, include, and invest. And we wanna be people who invite people into our homes, invite people out for a coffee, invite people to the church to see what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We wanna include people into what's happening here. That's where family discipleship night, so important. This is what's happening at our church. Will we invest what God has given us for his glory? And so if you thought last week was a little bit heavy, this week, Jesus comes in with a knockout punch. The big idea, if you don't examine your heart and whether or not your money has eternal impact, there will be eternal consequences. What an intro, hey? Oh boy, I can't wait for the next 30 minutes. I wonder if maybe the coffee bar is open and if not, I'll go somewhere else. But there's something about this. We, we look forward to like, what is God calling us to do? What does that mean? And whether you're here today and you're checking church out, you haven't been to church in a long time or maybe forever, or maybe you're looking for a brand new church or you call Ellerslie your church home, sermons like this are massively important. What does Ellerslie believe about how we use our money? What does Ellerslie believe about hell? When is the last time you've heard of theology on that? And so with such gravitas behind what's taking place here, we're gonna pray and ask God to guide us. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful privilege it is to preach through the book of Luke. And the joy it is to go, this is what we looked at last week, here's what we're gonna look at today. But God, talking about money in hell, that's personal, that's heavy, and we don't know how we're always gonna respond. So God, we pray that my words would fall down so that your words would be lifted up, that we would have open minds and open eyes and open hearts to understand, to see, and to respond what it is that you are calling us to do and that we would be changed by the power of your Holy Spirit working in each and one, every one of our lives this day. We pray this in Jesus' holy name, amen. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open them up to Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, we're in the second half of the passage, so we'll be in verses 19 to 31. If you're brand new to church, welcome here. Thanks for making it out on such a blistery day. There should be a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. Of course, if you have your phone or a tablet with you, you can download the Bible app and join me in Luke chapter 16. If you enjoy following along word for word, I always preach from the English Standard Version. This is our passage today. Jesus, looking at the disciples and the Pharisees, says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man, named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. Besides, all this between us 
is a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The opening few verses give us a glimpse of what life on earth is like. And if you enjoy taking notes, that's the first part of our outline this morning. And immediately we're given this significant contrast. This isn't somebody who struggles to make ends meet and somebody who has a little bit extra. This is somebody who is incredibly poor and someone else who's incredibly rich. This is the first verse of our passage. A rich man was clothed in purple and fine linen. Purple isn't like it is today. Back in the first century, it was difficult to find dye and of the, all the colors of dye. Purple was the most expensive by far, typically only worn by royalty. And so here is this rich man who thinks, I am someone special. I am important. And therefore, I will clothe myself in a purple garment because I deserve to be considered with royalty. In our English translation, sometimes we don't catch the importance of that next piece that they had was wearing fine linen. But in the original Greek, you get to see the nuance that's taking place here. This linen is imported from Egypt. And you might think, oh man, if I had nice money, I'd import clothes from, from Europe or from other parts of the world and I'd look fine. These aren't jackets. This guy is importing Egyptian linen underwear. <laughs> and then the, my favorite part, he feasted sumptuously every day. He wanted steak, he got steak. He wanted seafood, he got seafood. He wanted a private chef, he'd bring in a private chef for his party. This man is loaded with wealth. Next to him is the beggar. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, and he's covered with sores. And so we immediately see this juxtaposition that's taking place. Here's a rich man who's clothed with the color of royalty, who imports his underwear from Egypt. And over here is a man who can't even afford to clothe himself and is covered with sores. And you begin to see there's something not good going on here. This poor man desires to be fed from the scraps from the rich man's table. And the rich man is thinking, I would rather just throw my food away than give it to the poor beggar. In fact, and this is hard for us to wrap our minds around sometimes, in the first century, dogs typically weren't household pets. Dogs were stray animals around the city. And by being licked by this stray animal is probably what would cause infections and for these sores to boil over. This is not a good picture. I hopped online because I was thinking, oh, there's got to be some beautiful Renaissance painting or something to really help us visualize what takes place here more than I can just do with my words. And we couldn't find anything. So I asked Pastor David, pump some things into AI and see what it comes up with. This was the picture of the rich man. It's a picture of our youth pastor, Conrad, looking fine. And then Conrad says, well, you know what? I'm going to help out a poor man. And he hires Drew and Drew lives with them and they both look good hanging around in that nice car of theirs. David put in a couple more inputs and eventually it came up with this, which is pretty close. The rich man clothed in purple, a beggar covered in sores. But with all of these prompts that we give AI, it still couldn't put a wall between them. It couldn't wrap its mind around why a rich man would not even remotely hang out with the beggar. In verse 23, these two people die. Um, the rich man goes down to Hades. The poor man, Lazarus, goes up into heaven. 
and we recognize that there's something special that takes place here. In all of Jesus' parables, there's 39 in total. This is the only time a person is given a name. The only time in 39 stories where Jesus says, here is a man and his name is Lazarus, which means God helps. So the rich man has all the things he could want. He has all the money that clothes can buy. He has all the money for food to have. He has all the money to invite his friends to parties and to go out. And he has no name. And here's a poor man who would have been odious to those Pharisees and religious leaders. A beggar hanging out of the gate. A man covered in sores and can't even afford clothes or food. And Jesus says, and his name is Lazarus. So they go to their separate places and we read this in 16 verse 24. The rich man calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip his, the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Now you might read this and maybe you're familiar with this passage and you think, okay, well that's interesting. It's more than interesting. There's something fascinating going on here. This rich man is Jewish and this Jewish rich man is sent to hell and the Pharisees are appalled. How could a rich man go to hell? That's not, how could a rich Jewish man go to hell? That's not possible. There's entire theologies built around, does every Jew go to heaven or not? This passage would suggest, no, they don't. And the Pharisees are thinking, how is this possible? He's Jewish. He's wealthy. Obviously, God's blessing is upon him. This doesn't seem right. And yet there he is in hell. And it's this reminder for us, even sitting here today, that our heritage doesn't save us. Just because you're here and your family might be Christians doesn't mean you are. Just because you're here and you sing songs to God doesn't mean you're a Christian. Just because you're here and you're going to be going to family discipleship night on Wednesday doesn't mean you're a Christian. It takes much more than that. Do you believe in Jesus? And this man, he has a callous heart. He doesn't care about that poor beggar who's standing outside of his gates. He wants nothing to do with him. Do you know your neighbor's name? Do you know the people who live in your cul-de-sac? Do you know the people who live on your street? Do you know the people on the floor of your condo? Do you know the hurts and the pains that they're going through? Do you pay attention to them? Do you have relationship with them? Do you know that if something goes wrong, that they can call you and vice versa? Do you care about the person that God has placed right outside your doorstep? Second thing that's fascinating, and it's so in front of our eyes, it's almost hard to see. The rich man knew Lazarus's name. Still verse 24, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to come and help me. And I find that fascinating because that means the rich man was well aware that Lazarus was there. Even if he never talked to him himself, his servants would have said, well, you know, master, Lazarus, who lays outside your gate. Because it's not like he was rolling in and out in a nice car. He would have walked out of his gate. And maybe walking out, he didn't look right or left. That's fair, we get that. But every time he came home, he would have seen Lazarus. And yet his heart is so callous his heart is so uncaring that he looks at that man and says, I have no interest in him. I will not even allow him to eat the scraps from my table. Jesus, deeply concerned about this, says at the end of, uh, pardon me, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. 
But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For the Pharisees, they would have been furious at this story. Scandalous, they said. This man is a Jew. This man is wealthy. God's blessing is upon him. And this beggar gets to go to heaven and not the rich Jew? They would have been furious at this story, but Jesus has a point to make. Just 10 verses earlier, we looked at this last week. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and ridiculed him. So let me be clear. Having money is not a sin. Being wealthy, being rich is not a sin. Loving that money is a problem where we work so hard that all we want is more money and we, see, we don't see the people around us. This is a real issue and this is a real concern. But how are we going to use the money that God has given us? So now this is the third parable in a row where Jesus lays it out. Parable about money, parable about money, parable about money. In Luke chapter 15, we have the parable of the prodigal son. The older son who stays at home and is ticked off that his dad is taking more of his inheritance and sharing it with people around him has the older son live it and the Pharisees know that parable is about them. But here's the thing, sharing the inheritance God gives us doesn't actually cost anything. But still the Pharisees say, that's not for me. In the first half of chapter 16, the shrewd manager, Jesus is saying, we want you to shrewdly use your money. How can you build up friends so that when you get into heaven, they might await you and cheer you on and say, thank you for using your money. Thank you for being a blessing to me. Thank you for paying for a babysitter so I could go to work. Thank you for having me into your home. Thank you for taking me out for dinner. Thank you for caring about me when nobody else would. And then the second half of 16, spread the wealth. Do you see the poor around you? Do you have eyes that are open that are aware of what's taking place? Do you see the hurting in our church? Do you see the hurting in our neighborhoods? Do you see the hurting in our city? Do you see the hurting in the world? Are you aware of what's happening all around you? Because Jesus is saying, take the money that I have given you and use it to bless all of eternity. He says later on, uh, pardon me, earlier on in, in Luke, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift a single finger to help them. And again, back to the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So what are you doing? Are you using your money to bless those around you? Do you see those who are hurting and those who are struggling and saying, God has given me extra so that I might be a blessing to them? That's life on earth. The second part is life after death. Now, I'm not really well-traveled. I've, I've only left our continent once in my life. I'm not really well-read to know what the apologetic challenges are around the world. But I know here in Canada that one of the biggest questions people have about Christianity is how can a holy and loving God send people to hell? It's a real question. Maybe you in this room wonder that same thing. How is that possible? So let's look at a few different things. Right now, most of us here are living in suburbia, right? If you live on the uh, south side of the Anthony Hende, you're in suburbia. Some of us live downtown, some of us in rougher neighborhoods. I totally understand that. But most of us have a cute little house with a patch of grass. 
And even if you live in a condo or an apartment building, there's a park nearby, there's walking paths, there's a coffee shop that you can go and meet your friends at, and life is really good. When's the last time you got in a fight? I don't even mean a verbal barrage back and forth. I don't even mean road rage. I mean, when is the last time you physically got in a fight? When is the last time you were threatened with your life where you genuinely thought, I'm not sure if I'm going to survive? I'm 43 years old. My last fight, I was 13 in grade six. Wasn't exactly scared for my life. So let's shift it a little bit. War in the Gaza Strip, war in Ukraine, for our Nigerian friends, the civil war of 1967 in Nigeria, the Rwandan genocide between the Hutu and the Tutsis in the mid-90s. If you have kids, cover their ears. Somebody breaks into your house and you want to defend your house because this is my house and you get punched in the face and you get punched in the face again and they get shoved to the ground and they start kicking you and they say, because you put up a fight, now we're really going to make you pay. And they tie you to a chair and they take your wife and they take your daughter and they rape her before your eyes. And they torture them before torturing you and maybe killing you. So you're going to go into the Gaza Strip, you're going to go into Ukraine, you're going to go into the parts of the world where there's civil unrest and you say, there is no hell, don't worry about it. There is no hell, we're all going to sing kumbaya in heaven, don't worry about it. There is no hell, everybody gets to go to heaven. But for those people, that would make God a monster. God, why don't you do anything about this? Do you know the horror we're going through? How is that person going to pay for what they did to my family? And it's easy in suburbia Canada to go like, why would there be a hell? But sometimes we need to look broader and understand that sin must be put to death. That there is something that God is going to do where he is going to avenge those who have hurt us. And then you think, okay, well, those people who murder and rape and steal, they go to hell. But then what's that next line? Those who fight, those who steal, those injustice, well, yeah, they should go to hell too. Well, what about those who speak poorly about others, who fight others, who take advantage of others, who bring new Canadians in and take advantage of them? Well, yeah, they should go to hell too. And you keep going lower and lower and lower and you realize, oh man, I deserve hell as well. And if it wasn't for Jesus, I would spend the rest of eternity in there. Deuteronomy, rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies, and he will make atonement for his people. It's not just in the Old Testament. We see it in the New as well. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. But then we have another question. Okay, sure, so hell exists. I, I think I can handle that. But does it actually look like the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Jews for hundreds of years believe it does, and Jesus' story would certainly consider, um, uh, agree with that. And I think with most of us, when we think of hell or when we think of heaven, we think of what it will be, not what it presently is. And those are two different things. 
For the Old Testament, we read the word Sheol um, a few dozen times. We, uh, and Sheol is a place for the dead in general, both the righteous and the unrighteous. The very first time that we read Sheol in scriptures, Genesis 37, um, Jacob, one of the three patriarchs of Israel, has just learned that his son is dead. So all of his sons and all of his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, 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 I shall go down to Sheol, to my son mourning. And thus Jacob wept for his son, Joseph. Father of Israel, godly man. His name is Jacob and it's changed to Israel. He's in heaven. So Sheol is a place for the dead in general. Hell, Hades is a resting place for the wicked. Heaven slash paradise is a resting place for the righteous. But then you might start to think to yourself, well, are we, are we sure? Like, can they actually see each other? Pardon me, let me back up a little bit. Um, you might remember Jesus saying to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Second Corinthians 5, verse 8, I would prefer to be away from the body and home with the Lord. So there's this waiting place. Don't think purgatory. Think a hell and a heaven, just not the future hell and the heaven. Purgatory is a horrible idea. It was made up in about the 1200s. Um, is a black mark on the church where they use it as a fundraising event to uh, fundraise for a whole bunch of uh, buildings that they needed to put together. Awful time in church history. But right now, at this time, there is a hell and a heaven, and apparently they can see one another. You might think, well, do we have more ideas? So the uh, Protestant Bible has 66 books. The Catholic Bible has what Protestants call the Apocrypha. One of the Apocryphal books is Second Esdras, and we read this. The whole context is about what's taking place right now um, in the heavenly realm. The fifth way, says Ezra, is that they will see the habitations of the others are guarded by angels in profound quiet. So you have this thing of what's taking place. And so Jesus says, the rich man goes down to hell. And by the way, after verse 22, he's never called the rich man again. It's only personal pronouns. And you have Lazarus and Abraham in heaven and they can see each other. Verse 23, back to the scripture. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Let me ask you a question. You're stuck in hell. What's the first question you ask? It's not a trick question. What's the first question you ask? I asked my wife this the other day. I think she nailed it. For me, is it warmer than Edmonton in January? Because if it is, then maybe it's not awful. But my wife says, and she's correct, God, will you get me out of here? Going back to verse 24 again, who does the rich man talk to and what does he ask for? Who does he talk to? What does he ask for? He doesn't talk to God. He doesn't cry out to God. He says, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. This man has no relationship with God. If he did, he would call out to him. And what's fascinating is that he doesn't ask to be removed from hell. He never repents. He never asks forgiveness, but he asks for mercy. He says, Abraham, send Lazarus. So he still thinks he's better than Lazarus. He's in hell, Lazarus is in heaven, and he thinks, Abraham, send Lazarus to help me. Our heritage doesn't matter. 
You can almost hear him crying out to Abraham, but we're family. But it doesn't matter. Abraham says that doesn't matter at this time. And it doesn't matter if you think my parents are Christian, if you think I'm doing the right things. Do you have a relationship with Jesus? And are you using the blessings that he has given you to see that expand around the world? Abraham responds in verse 26. Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. In the midst of all this fire that's taking place, it boils down and it helps us to see who we truly are. And it boils away all the pretense, it boils away all the money and it purifies. And at the very heart of this rich man, he is selfish and arrogant and he thinks he's better than Lazarus. And he never asks to leave hell. When it comes to your eternal destination, God's going to give you exactly what you want. Hopefully for the vast, hopefully for all of us in this room, we cry out, God, may your will be done. And he says, welcome into heaven. But for those of us who want nothing to do with, with God, for those of us in the world who want nothing to do with God, God looks at us and says, may your will be done. And he sends you to eternal damnation. Life on earth, life after death, a life well lived. I'm going to go back to the scripture, picking up in verse 27, I believe. And he said, then I beg you, he being the former rich man, then I beg you, father, to send someone to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear from them. And he said, no, father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent Notice he still doesn't himself. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There's two different chasms that are taking place here. The chasm the rich man recognizes from heaven and hell cannot be crossed, but he's thoughtful and he goes, well, perhaps the chasm between heaven and earth can take place. And you'll notice in verse 31, Abraham never says no. Abraham never specifically says that cannot be done. He simply says that it won't make a difference. But indirectly, what this rich man is saying is, I didn't have enough information. I didn't know that I was supposed to take care of the poor. I didn't know that I was supposed to use my money to make some friends so that we might all worship God together in eternity. I didn't know that it was important to take care of the orphan and the widow and the beggar outside my gate. Nobody told me. Yeah, because you were too busy counting all your money. It's not like God talks about riches a half dozen times in scripture. It's not like he says it a couple dozen times and maybe we just don't quite hear it on a Sunday morning. There are hundreds and hundreds of verses where God says, take care of the orphan, the widow, the poor, the beggar. Here's just a few of them. Deuteronomy 15, 11. This is from the book of Moses. There will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. The prophets, this is one of them, Zechariah, do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. One of the greatest hits from the book of Amos. Take away this noise of your songs and the melody of your harps. I'm not gonna listen to that. Let justice roll like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The great 
irony, in divine coincidence, in the divine conspiracy, the title of one of my favorite books. A little while later, Jesus raises a man from the dead, and many of you know his name is Lazarus. God helps. But much like the same passage, Jesus recognizes that the Pharisees aren't going to respond. The religious leaders aren't going to respond. Their hearts are already hardened. And do you know how the religious leaders respond when Lazarus is risen from the dead? Let's kill him and let's kill Jesus for doing it. To the best of my knowledge, they never get around to killing Lazarus, but they do end up killing Jesus. Shortly after Lazarus is raised from the dead, I believe my numbers are right, it's about eight to 10 days later, Jesus is put on the cross where he dies for not just the sins of the Jews, not just those who believe in him, but he dies for the Pharisees, he dies for all nations, for all people at all times, for all of humanity. And I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this, but it's a fascinating thought experiment. Do you realize that for those people who do not believe in Jesus, that their debt is never fully paid? Where they go down to hell and for the rest of eternity, they are in eternal torment, but their debt is never paid for if it was, they would allow it to be out. But there is a permanence of hell, a permanence of death. And therefore the logical conclusion to that is that when Jesus goes into hell, he takes on all of humanity's sins He takes on all of humanity's eternities. He takes on all of humanity's punishments for all time, for all people across the entire earth, and it's compressed into three short days before he triumphantly rises from the grave and says, whoever believes in me shall not perish but have eternal life. And he left the richness of heaven so that for those of us in our poorness might receive the richness of heaven that he has to offer. And he dies and goes down to hell so that we might live and spend eternity with him. I'd like to invite the prayer team to come forward and the worship team to join me on the stage. So let's get really, really practical. What are we supposed to do with this? First thing, look around the church. When you look around the church, when you talk to people in the foyer, when you attend our ministries or our programs or talk to other parents when you pick up your kids, do you see people who are hurting? Are you aware of the people in our church who might not be able to make rent, who it's a little difficult to put food on the table this month? Maybe they're a new Canadian, they need a place to live. Maybe they need some furniture for their new house. Maybe they just got into a big fight with their partner and they need a place to stay for a couple days. You might say, Dave, why would you start there? In the first century church, people from the outside looked into the church and said, wow, do they care for each other well. And we have to care for each other well so that when we invite people in, they might say, the church is amazing. Secondly, look around the city. I'm going to go back to what I said earlier in the message. Do you know your neighbor's name? Do you know what your neighbor might be hurting with or going through right now? Do you look around and maybe drive through the city and you see these homeless encampments and think, what can I do differently? How can I be a part of the solution? How can I use my finances? How can I use my material wealth to be a blessing? Maybe like last week, it's inviting somebody over. 
maybe you have a cabin and you can say, hey, why don't you come join me? I know you don't never, never get to a lake. We'd love to bless you and host you for a day. Third thing, look around the world. One of our mission partners is right here in Edmonton and it's called Adira. And in February 25th, you can find this in the ministry catalog, we're doing the coldest night of the year walk. Last year, we raised $8,000 for Adira. Adira is a place for um, hurting moms and hurting women to go to who are escaping abusive relationships. What if we doubled that this year? What if we raised $16,000 for this organization that tells these women about Jesus and the power of Jesus and the healing relationship it has to offer? And even if you're here right now and you're thinking, Dave, I have no extra money. I, I just don't. How can you bless somebody? Can you take them out for coffee? Can you go on a walk with them, whether around the river valley or walking through the malls? Can you meet somebody at church and be a blessing to them just by sitting and letting them hear your story? How can we be God's hands and feet to the world around it that needs it so much? It's a powerful sobering message. Now it's time to stand up and sing and worship the holy God that went through hell so that we might get through heaven who shared his riches with us so that we would no longer be poor but to have the wealth that he has to offer us later.